This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Take No Thought, God's Reply to Our Borrowed Anxieties, and the author is Dr. Preston R. Winfrey. And Dr. Winfrey joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Winfrey. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us, and uh, it's great to be with a person who understands the need for us to just get rid of our anxieties. That may sound too simple, but we must work at that, and that's what your book is all about. You say, my book is a practical guide that leads a person from worry into a wonderful, stressless life. And so you, you think that uh, it's all possible, and your book really is m- very unique. It probably isn't many books written in this way. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree with that, Steve, wholeheartedly. Well, before we find out about some of these details about yesterday's dilemma, today's anxiety, and beyond tomorrow, please tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background, and why you decided to write the book. Well, currently I am a pastor um, entering into my 32nd year of the same congregation, the Pioneer Missionary Baptist Church, and um, working with people and leading them um, into greener pastures, so to speak. Um, I can't help but see their plight, see where they are, and sitting with them, talking with them through many, many discussions, hospital visits, and et cetera, I get the opportunity to kind of sit up close, on the front seat, hear where they are, hear their concerns, their troubles, their woes. And with this book, uh, we were approaching the year 2000, the new millennium, and there was so much discussion um, just nationwide about what was going to happen, what was not going to happen, and what would be and what would not be. And unfortunately, I saw a lot of that anxiety within my own congregation and other congregations. And I thought, how could we get a message to them that they did not need to worry unnecessarily? There are other areas, of course, outside of the Y2K, but that was the largest item and I wanted to reach them. Um, everything can't be done on a Sunday morning, but um, this would be something that would help them during the course of the week, 
they wouldn't necessarily have to remember this. They could pick it up and read it uh, as often as necessary. And so it's from that background, that context, that uh, I thought I would be in a position as a pastor, as a friend, um, as a co-laborer in this um, world in which we live. And you call this a simple approach as well. Yes, I did. I call it a simple approach because life itself is um, life. It can be very complicated. It can almost be like a jigsaw puzzle with the critical pieces missing. So the last thing a person needs when they're reading a book is to try and figure out, okay, so what did that mean? What does this author say, and what is he trying to say, and do I need another, a second, and a third, and a fourth book to explain what was said in a previous uh, book? So I wanted to keep it simple so that the blind could see. Why is it so difficult not to worry, not to worry? Why is it so hard? Um, Steve, I believe that it's it's hard uh, first because we as people make it hard. We make it hard for ourselves. We sometimes uh, just will not accept that some of life does not have to be as difficult as we make it. And so it's it's hard because we think I can handle this. I can do this on my own. I, I don't need any help. But if I'm in a hole and I cannot get out of that hole, I need help. And even if it's a word of wisdom, that's help in dark places. Your part one says yesterday's dilemma, and then chapter one, Satan's lie to mankind. What is Satan's lie to mankind? Well, Satan's lie to mankind was um, based on Adam and Eve um, in the Bible, book of Genesis, where Satan really challenged this first couple uh, as he speaks with Eve. Um, and somehow convinced her that she could work independent of God, that she really did not need God. She didn't need to believe what God was saying. Satan uh, convinced her that she could become a God herself, her own God. And, of course, she believed it and bit into what he had to offer to her. And as an end result, uh, when her eyes became open, she was ashamed that she actually made that decision. And Satan did it then, and unfortunately, he's very successful today in the lives of so many people. Because if he can get us to believe... Hocus pocus, if you will, for lack of a better word. But if, if he can get us to believe a lie rather than a truth, and, and Steve, a lie is more convincing than a truth. The truth cuts through all of the chatter, and a lie fluffs things up 
And so that, that's what Satan did for this first couple, and that's what he's doing today. Tell us about today's anxiety. Part two of your book focuses on today's anxiety. Well, today's anxiety, we, we're, I think that so much emphasis is on, you know, me, myself, and I, and again, it's really just a carryover from yesterday's dilemma. Nothing really has changed. Faces change, uh, names change, but the principles um, remain the same. And for some reason, there are countless people who's trying to just get it all now. You know, they don't believe in hereafter. Um, it's self-preservation, you know, first law of nature, that, that, that attitude. And so we... Uh, tend to get comfortable with the good times. We want to hold on to what was and don't want to deal with what's ahead. And so I think we get stuck, and that's that's today's anxiety. And as a result of that, uh, we don't have what we need because we're still trying to live yesteryear. Well, you make it very clear. You say refuse and reject anything, anything that competes with the peace that only God can give you. So get rid of oh. anything that is not of God. Um, particularly the peace of, that God gives to you. Um, and Scripture teaches that, you know, God gives us all things. Uh, there are, however, some things that God does not give to us that can rob us of our peace. Um, just going back with um, Satan's lie to Eve. Um, God told Adam and Eve um, they could eat from all of the trees in the garden, but this particular tree, tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, he warned them, don't eat from this because the day you eat of it, you'll die. Well, Satan somehow convinced them that they weren't going to really die. And so the peace that they had, they forfeited that peace. And when they ran that light, so to speak, their peace now was disrupted. Um, it had diminished. And now they are anxious. They're at each other trying to figure this thing out when the way was already made for them. God had already created a path for them. And had they gone down that path, they would have been all right. But the enemy comes in and shows them a shortcut to success. And unfortunately, they didn't realize that success really comes from hard and intentional work. And the same is true of us today. So we must make, in your words, an intentional effort to get rid of your worries by having faith, faith in God. Yes, that, that is my firm uh, belief and conviction. And, of course, I'm not just 
speaking about what I have read or what I've heard, but I have actually experienced that um, when I have faith in God, um, He supplies me with everything that I need. Sometimes part of the everything I need could be found in other people that He may bring into my life. It can be in other devices. Uh, it, and uh, the like, but it's faith in God. Uh, another example of that would be having a headache, a terrible headache. I can pray and pray and pray and say, Lord, take this away. Now, he may do it, but we have aspirants also. And so I can still believe in God that he will relieve me of this headache and at the same time, I can accept what's available that will also assist me in getting to my des uh, destination. Because in part three, you state in a title, Jesus Christ, always the same. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He is always the same according to the scripture. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And my experience in reading um, in the Bible um, is that God does not change. You know, he was dependable early on. He's dependable now. And with that kind of a track record, he can't help but be dependable in the future. And right now I'm living in my future. Um, years ago, I looked forward to this day, and I'm looking forward to other days in the future. And um, I have found that God has been consistent. You know, amidst those who disbelieve in God, uh, that's that's them, but it's my firm conviction that uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is consistent. He's the same, always. So how important it is, is it for us to study our Bible every day? Oh, I think it is um, critically important, Steve, because... Um, an acronym for the Bible is Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And only a foolish person despises instructions. Instructions can save a life. Instructions can increase the value in a person's life. Um, people perish, one of the prophets said for a lack of knowledge. And so, without instructions, we are left to try and figure things out. And someone said, I'd much rather have an experienced guide than a detailed map. And for me and for many who have uh, come to understand the Bible and read it, they understand that it is an experienced guide. Very well put. And 
You certainly have a lot of wisdom that you're sharing with us right now and also in your book titled Take No Thought, God's Reply to Our Borrowed Anxieties. Dr. Winfrey, tell us how to get your book. Well, my book may be purchased um, through iUniverse, and uh, it's a great, great, great company. Um, and it's just a matter of uh, you can uh, phone them. They're at uh, 1-800-AUTHORS. Also, um, it's available softcover, hardcover, and uh, ebook. And um, the book can also be ordered through uh, one's local bookstore. And another place they can get it, they can get it directly from the author. I'll be very glad uh, to autograph the book for the individual who wishes to make that purchase. And they can contact you at p1winfrey at aol.com. That is correct. That's my personal email, and I'd be so delighted. And if they wanted to place an order um, in the subject on the subject line, just simply put, take no thought. That will set up a flag for me instantly. And we'll be so glad to accommodate them. Dr. Preston R. Winfrey, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, Steve, it was my pleasure, and thank you so much for the interview. And I uh, pray the Lord's blessings upon you. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Bits and Pieces, and the author is James R. Taylor III. Welcome, James, to iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. This is an incredible mystery thriller. Uh, We'll find out more about the incredible characters, especially this most evil man, this sociopath murderer, Lewis Clapp, and of course the uh, invincible Annabelle Wolf. Uh, She is doing things her way, as you put it. It's 1890, and women don't become attorneys. But, of course, not everybody is an Annabelle Wolf, right? I mean, she's very unique. Oh, she is. She is stubborn, determined, independent. She's, by the age of 20, she's even past the bar. So she is ready to become an attorney, but unfortunately nobody will talk to her about it. That's the truth. Uh, She ended up having to clerk for her father, who was a judge, and write mystery novels. And she had to do that under an assumed name because women were supposed to write poetry and romances and nothing else. And that wasn't what she wanted to do. Of course, that all changes when people in her area start uh, seeing headless female bodies floating in the river. But before we get into that... Tell us about yourself, James, your background, and how this book came about. Well, I was born in Virginia, but raised in Kentucky, and my early career was in uh, not law enforcement, but with dealing with uh, criminals in a furlough-type program, and I spent 15 years doing that. And I developed an interest in the criminal mind, you know, how they think, why they think they can get away with a crime, and uh, generally anything about them and the way their thought processes work. And when I was forced to retire because of my vision and was casting around for something to do, my wife suggested that I write a book. And... Annabelle Wolf ended up the subject of it. And, well, uh, she she is the the atypical woman of her day, but at the same time, she is determined, isn't she? She's determined oh, to be successful. She is. She's the youngest daughter of four. All her other sisters married like they were supposed to as a Victorian woman and had families, but she didn't want to do that. She wanted to emulate her father, who was a judge. She went to law school, went to college when most women didn't. She wanted to go to law school. No law school would admit her. So she studied law under her father. Then they had to fight to get her to pass the bar exam because if women weren't supposed to be lawyers, they didn't have any business trying to take the bar exam. But she did. She showed how smart she was. She passed with flying colors. 
But then nobody wanted to practice law with her. So here she was with a nice law degree and her shingle, but she was reduced to clerking for her father and writing mystery novels, which she could only do under a known to flume because nobody thought that women should write anything other than poetry or romance novels. And so then, how did uh, she how did she come uh, come upon this dismembered body of a young woman? How did that happen? Okay, she lived in Moscow, which is a little town in Ohio, and the uh, train ran on the other side of the river. So she and her father, when they would go into Cincinnati to the courthouse, they would take the ferry across the river. And one day in the early spring in 1890, they were crossing the river, and she saw a body or what was the torso of a body floating down the river. And she knew it was a, a murder. It had to be because the body was missing its arms, legs, and head. It wasn't an accident. And when the sheriff, who was bumbling and couldn't do anything, just was content to plant the body in Potter's Field and leave it there, she decided she wanted to find out who murdered the person and of course everybody was against it and but she persevered and the bodies kept mounting up and she kept going after it even though nobody wanted her to and then eventually she got to the bottom of it and solved the murder well, tell us about Lewis Clapp. He's the sociopath here. He is the serial killer. Okay. I based him on, in my reading, I came across somebody that was from New York about this period of time who was never captured, but who disposed of his victims in the same way. In other words, he would remove their arms, and legs, and head mainly so they couldn't be identified, and then cast what was left afloat in the Hudson River. And he killed at least five people that were whose bodies were found, but he was never captured, and they know very little about him, you know, because they weren't able to find him. And so I put him together with some other people ideas from other people that I had known earlier when I was working with Furloughs and came up with Lewis. And he started murdering people at a very young age. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did in his father when he was 10. His father was a, somebody who used to take out his spite on his family and his wife and his son and his son finally got tired of it and cut his throat and then he found out that uh, he enjoyed the act and he went on and kept repeating it because these five victims or so that he found in there he dumped in the river were not all of his victims he had dispatched a whole 
family earlier in his career, among others. And he essentially was not going to be stopped until somebody stopped him. So he lives in a little village just upriver from where Annabelle and her father live. That's correct. So thus the body's floating down the river, uh, down to Moscow. Yes. 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 So how does he, just give us a little on how he lures his victims. Okay, most of them, although some of the later ones, he changed his thing. He would advertise in papers back east for mail-order brides, which was a very common thing back in the 80s and 90s. People would put ads in the paper looking for spouses. And if he found one who looked susceptible, he would court him by letter. And when they convinced him that they were in love and he was going to marry him, he would have them convert all of their property or their anything they had of value into money and come down the river, and he would meet them. The trouble is that uh, there wasn't any wedding. They ended up in a subterranean room under his barn, and uh, he essentially was a collector. He collected victims. And when he got tired of them, he would dispatch them. He would murder them and send their bodies down the river, challenging law enforcement to come and find him. And when they couldn't, he would escalate what he had done, making, like Ted Bundy, the the, uh, more that he got into the killing and... He could, they couldn't find him. He would try to make something more audacious for the uh, police to find. He kidnapped a, a minister's wife, and then finally he kidnapped somebody off the streets of Cincinnati and really tormented the police. He would write them letters. He would... Uh, do anything he could think of to show that he was smarter than the police, which is true of a lot of sociopaths. They uh, feel that they are superior to anybody else, and they need to have their ego fueled by the fact that nobody can find them, nobody can bring them to an end. And then there's Jacob Sullivan, uh, this cantankerous investigator with the Ohio Attorney General's office. Uh, Tell us about him and why he's helping Annabelle. Okay, Jacob Sullivan, uh, Ohio in the 1890s had no uh, statewide police force. The only ones they had were attached to the Attorney General's office in Columbus. And they were investigators who would investigate things like bank fraud or bank robberies and so forth. And Annabelle's father was a friend of the attorney general. And when Annabelle and Rebecca were getting nowhere and finding Clapp, 
he had written to the Attorney General asking him for help. And Jacob was the one who was sent down. And, of course, Jacob looks and he sees he has to work with a woman and an amateur. And he, at the first, you know, he just passes her off. He thinks, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing or anything else. And gradually, over the, the weeks it takes to bring Clap to justice, he develops a respect for her and for her talents as a sleuth, as Annabelle calls herself. Why did you have Lewis Clapp? Why did you have him speak most of his dialogue in German, which, of course, you translated? Okay, which I hope is good in which to speak German. Uh, I have a lot of friends, and I've been brought up with a lot of family friends, who were native to Europe, and this was the way they would speak. Uh, if they couldn't think of, they had learned English as a second language, and uh, sometimes if they were trying to talk, explain something, they couldn't think exactly how to express themselves in English, so they would lapse back into their native tongue which in Lewis's case was German. He was raised in a section of Cincinnati called Over the Rhine, which in the 80s and 90s was exclusively German. And the people who lived there, it was almost like they were still in Germany. They had papers in German. They spoke German as their everyday language and everything. You know, everything else that they were doing was, they conducted themselves in German. So when you have to speak to people who speak another tongue like English, sometimes it's hard for them to think what they wanted to say, so they just lapse back into German. <laughs> and, and Clapp was one of those. Well, this story has a final showdown. We won't give that away, but of course, eventually Annabelle, she's going to have to face the killer in order to save her friends and stop this bloody rampage. Uh, what a what a story! What a story, James. Uh, James R. Taylor the third. The title: Bits and Pieces. This mystery murder thriller. Tell us how to get your book, James. Okay, you can get it through, of course, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. You can just go to their websites and enter bits and pieces by James R. Taylor, and it'll take you right to it. Or you can order it from the publisher, iUniverse in Bloomington, and you can get on their website and order it through that. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Age Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. 
Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Mississippi Flyway. And the author is Nell Rand, and Nell joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nell. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, Nell Rand, you have uh, written this book, Extraordinary Tale of a One-Woman Search, to uncover a past full of haunting family secrets. It will make us laugh, cry, and of course deal with some critical issues in our society. And one of the characters is very, in some ways, controversial because he, everybody's going to love him, but he is a has that side of him, a kind of an evil man, and especially with his daughter. So. Tell us about yourself before we get into more about the characters and the plot. Nell, tell us about yourself and uh, why you wrote the book. I wrote the book when I was 65, but I've always used, I've always been a closet writer, and I used to write plays when I was a kid. And actually, I have a, a bachelor's degree in painting and creative writing, and a master's degree in art therapy. So I've always been involved in the world of creating. Uh, I have two grown children. I recently moved from a cabin deep in the woods where I, where I chopped my own wood and went on long walks in the, in the woods with my dogs and cats every day. But I recently developed Parkinson's disease, so I moved into town where I didn't have to chop wood anymore. But let's see what would be interesting that I could tell you about myself. <laughs> I was very involved in uh, getting the bottle bill passed in Portland years ago. I still have been I'm writing my third novel right now. My second novel has been published. And um, I love writing. I love to watch birds. I don't know what else I can say about myself that's that interesting. But. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, this book, you call, the, you call it an adventure story. Uh, you, you call it a good road trip, too, and it's got humor in it, but it's also got the facets of society, dysfunctional families, and, and problems that people have. Uh, so... Why don't we get into talking uh, about Ellie Moon? Let's talk about Ellie. Okay. Well, Ellie Moon is portrayed in the book with two different characters. Owl is Ellie when she was a little girl. And she 
Al is the one who carries the memories of the sexual abuse by her father. Ellie doesn't remember it at all. So the, the book starts out with Ellie Moon being recently divorced. She's hounded by her verbally abusive mother, haunted by the drowning death of her sister Rose. She's just lost her job when the book opens as a journalist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So she decides she has nothing to lose and goes on a road trip with her estranged father, Tiny, who's a gambler and a con man. He comes to visit Ellie in uh, St. Louis after stealing a, a, the sheriff, sheriff Dover's truck after a card game. The sheriff is a really bad person. He's a he's a murderer, and he kills people <laughs> because he collects shoes, and he kills people for their shoes. And he has a collection that he keeps in the back of his truck. Hmm. So anyway, Ellie and Tiny go on the road trip following the Mississippi Flyway from St. Louis down to New Orleans. They make stops along the route to gamble and sample the barbecue in every state, which one is the best. And there's, they stop for one unforgettable eating contest that Tiny participates in with his friend Chicago Fats and little Lester. Anyway, Ellie discovers at each stop along the way she remembers a little bit more about her past. She's sort of, a, in the beginning, a shattered person because she doesn't remember what happened. But in the end, she remembers that part of her childhood that left her such a shattered person. She, and she learned that in order to forgive, she must first remember. And the first person she must forgive is herself. So she's was kind of a hard character to write because she wasn't very alive and lovable in the beginning of the story. And she gradually blossomed into a a flower. So, And we're going to love Tiny in many ways, even though he is this perpetrator, this sexual abuser. Right. Why he's is that? bigger than life. Well, he's He's sort of bigger than life, and he's uh, he loves his friends. He follows the character of my father to a certain extent because my father was a gambler along the Mississippi River. Actually, his best friend was, in real life, was Minnesota Fats. They made a movie called The Hustler. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that movie? Jackie Gleason. Yes, I do. But Jackie Gleason played the role of Minnesota Fats. Well, that was my dad's best friend, and his his real name was New York Fats. Rudolph Wanderon was his real name. But I grew up around him. He was my dad's best friend. So, in a way, I have some material that firsthand material about him. But Tiny was always sampling all the different foods along the way. He was a great big man, bigger than life, and he, he ate a lot of barbecue. <laughs> but anyway, he, he took the trip. 
he didn't realize that he wanted forgiveness from his daughter, but that's really why he went to see her after all those years. Tiny's been searching for forgiveness that he doesn't even know how to ask for. He flies through a life of excess and gambling, forever dodging and running from the consequences of his past actions. He gathers crowds wherever he goes. People find him very charismatic, particularly in the chapter about the eating contest, which is kind of a grotesque sort of thing, but that's that's part of the Southern Gothic style, I think. Well, how did the surroundings and where all this takes place uh, illustrate and reinforce your storyline? I guess it's because it's this deep south? Well, it starts in St. Louis, and then they go through Kentucky and Tennessee and Mississippi and down to New Orleans. But, yeah, I'm going to talk about the uh, plays a big role in the novel. The surroundings direct, describe, and dictate the progress of the journey, both physically and spiritually. Because the Mississippi River shows its power, sometimes violent, sometimes protective, but it flows relentlessly to its appointed end, reflecting nature's force to be true to its course. And the bird flyway is suspended over the action of the story, with the promise of freedom to those who take it. And the characters, there's a lot of different characters in the book, Friends of Tiny's, and they're all eccentric. But these characters careen recklessly down southern back roads, highways, and city streets, searching for an escape. The revelations of Ellie's hidden pasts are progressively uncovered in these dense forests of kudzu vine covered trees, underground tunnels, thick swamps, and the force and wisdom of the river. Now, what would you say the greatest truth that Ellie learns on her journey? Well, I think the greatest truth she learns is that in order to forgive, she must first remember, and she must learn to forgive herself, first and foremost. But... I think a person can't really heal if they don't remember the trauma that happened to them. Then when it becomes apparent to them, they understand what happened. And also understand their abuser, because people who abuse usually have been abused themselves. And Mm -hmm. that comes out in the story about Tiny's abuse. And Ellie finally understands it, too, so. Now, you've mentioned that your book uses humor, uh, but what is the purpose? Uh, More than just to amuse. Well, the humor, the humor is like a spoonful of sugar that makes the hard truths go down. Mm. You know, the book is like life is full of villains, treachery, danger, and hidden surprises and the comical characters put in bizarre places, situations bring the needed relief, I think, and contrast to all the dark side of it. And, you know, I like to see the humor in most situations, and I 
I wrote a book that I would like to read myself, so <laughs> I like well, humor. That's, that's the biggest tribute to your book when the author, I would love to read it, and you, because we're usually the most critical. So Ellie, yeah. through all of this, she realizes the secrets her soul has kept from her for more than 20 years. Finally, she's able to work through all that, and there is freedom? There is freedom, yeah. She, we're not exactly sure in the end of the book that she's totally forgiven Tiny, but she's forgiven herself, and she's, she's free of the constant neurotic doubting herself all the time, so... So she oh, is working on it, and it is working for her. And it's working for her. She's healing. Well, that's so critical. So this book is about healing. It is about healing. It's about, about abuse and racism and all, all sorts of trauma and about healing, how to heal from that. The title is Mississippi Flyway. And we've been listening to the author, Nell Rand. Nell, tell us how we can get your book. Well, let's see. You can get it through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And it's in the iUniverse bookstore under the Star Books. And um, I think it's online. And several, it's, sure. it's also an e-book. So it's Very online to some e-book places. Well, thank you so much, Nell, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.